ask you to take your Bibles and turn to uh, Judges. Actually, we're going to uh, read a little bit in Joshua 23, and then we're going to end up in the book of Ephesians. So if you can figure that out, then you can help me. Uh, but uh, we're going to start in Joshua 23. When we talk about when a people forget God, this is the second part of the message uh, from two weeks ago. And let me just uh, say a thank you to Stephen uh, for the word that God gave him for last Sunday. And uh, I was seeing tweets about it and getting messages about it. And uh, I'm grateful for the gift that God has given Stephen and uh, his listening to the Lord to hear what uh, needed to be said last week and helping us to prepare for refresh and uh, it has been good for uh, Buck and Gary and Stephen all to stay on the same page with us as we press in toward revival, toward God doing. There's nothing wrong with us that revival couldn't fix. Now, it will create its own set of problems, uh, but that's okay. I would rather deal with the problems of revival than to deal with the problems of not having it. Uh, or as Vance Havner said, I'd rather calm down a fanatic than try to breathe life into a corpse. So uh, it's going uh, to be a good conference for us. I'm very excited about just what God is showing these men that they need to say to us. And, um, and, and I would add to that that uh, it, it takes a special kind of church to receive the kind of preaching that this church receives because uh, many churches around the country would be resistant uh, to hard preaching because we want it easy and we want it soft and we want it uh, to, to taste like a vanilla cone of ice cream and, and sometimes preaching is, is a tough steak and you just got to learn to chew it. Uh, so, uh, but I'm, I'm grateful for people who are willing to listen and to learn and to heed uh, what God has to say, which brings me to a very funny story. Um, I did not know this until this last week, or I would have told you a long time ago. But uh, back when we were doing the screenings of Courageous, uh, we had a request that I did not know about. None of us on the team knew about, but we had a we had a couple of hundred screenings around the country for different groups and organizations and ministries and. We had a request for a screening from uh, a church that I have mentioned from time to time in the pulpit as their lack of preaching the word. And uh, so they wanted to have a screening and they wanted to do it in their building, which seats 20,000. And so they called one of the members of the Provident team and said, we, we want to do a screening, but we want to do it in our main building. And they said, there's no way you're going to do it. We're not going to let you show this movie for free to 20,000 people. And they said, oh, no, we're not going to do it. We, we want to do it for 20 people. We're going to put 20 people in that room, and we want them to see it. There are key people who want them to see the movie. You're sure it's only going to be 20? Oh, it's only going to be 20 people. That's all it's going to be is 20 people in the room. And so uh, uh, Kyle Thompson went to Lakewood uh, Church in Houston. And uh, showed up, and sure enough, there were 20 people. Now, they had to sit halfway back in the room to be able to see the screen because the screen is just huge in there. So they had to sit halfway back to get the full sound and everything else. And there were 20 people there. So while Kyle was getting the screening ready, the pastor of the church walks in, Joel Osteen. 
and he says, hi, how are you? Good to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. I know this was a strange request, but I just appreciate you coming. So we're glad to do it. You know, we weren't sure that you were going to actually have 20 people. We thought this could have been, how do I tell all these people they need to leave? Oh, no, that's not it at all. And so then Pastor Joel says, I am a big fan of Sherwood Pictures. I know Michael Cat is not a big fan of me. <laughs> now that was worth making the movie right there. I mean, that was just, I'm just telling you, write it on my tombstone. It just was worth, worth making a movie. And I was, I've been trying to figure out now for a week, how in the world did he find that out? Which one of you is tweeting that? Oh. <laughs> Who, who's sending that message out on Twitter that he's picking up? Because I know he's not listening to my podcast. <laughs> Can I just tell you that whether it's him or 10,000 others, we're not going to see America turn back to God with soft preaching and with a watered-down message and with positive thinking. Because you can think positively, but if you're in quicksand, you're still going to go under. And you can be as positive as you want to be if, about it. Uh, but I, all right, let's get to the message. Now, Dan, you can start the tape. <laughs> <laughs> Joshua 23 and verse 5. Remember, Joshua has warned the people of the consequences of not following God and doing what he has told them to do. Joshua 23 and verse 5, but the Lord your God, he will thrust them out, he's talking about all the enemies, from before you and drive them from before you and you will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left so that you will not associate with these nations these which remain among you or mention the names of their gods. Isn't that amazing? He said, don't even call out the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God, for if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, I know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Here's what Joshua said. Look back, if you would, at verse 13. He says, if you don't deal with the enemy, if you don't deal with those things that can pull you down, that cause you to compromise, those things will become snares, traps, whips, and thorns until the day you die. And that's what happens when God's people compromise with evil. The, the evil becomes a trap and a snare and a whip and a thorn in our side for the rest of our lives, and we end up living below where God intended us to live. 
So the first thing I want us to see is when people forget God, they fall into bondage. It's just a study of history will tell you that. When people forget God, they get into bondage. They'd been warned. They had promised that they would obey God. Now, if you want to write by Judges chapter 2, Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20, Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20, basically God told them, don't intermarry, don't have peaceful coexistence at Mount Sinai. They said, that's the command, we will follow it. And then when they got with Joshua, they reaffirmed it. And every tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, every tribe took an oath They swore that they would drive the heathens out of the land, that they would break down the idols, and that they would purify the land and not intermingle with them. And yet, when you get to the book of Judges, seven times you see this pattern repeated over 350 years. They compromise. They compromise. They intermarry. They don't get the evil out. They rebuild the altars and idols to evil. And because they wouldn't learn from the past, they were destined to repeat it. History is a a history of not learning from our past and being destined to repeat it. If America does not learn the lessons of history, we will be destined, destined to repeat the failures of history. If we don't learn the lessons of history... We will go the way of every nation and every empire since the days of Abraham. We will fall and be forgotten. We will be a once great nation. If we don't learn from history that you cannot compromise on the values that you are established on. Now, you can say a lot of things. Uh, I'm reading two books right now on the presidents and on some of their quirkiness and things like that. And you can say a lot of things about some of our founders being deists and some of them not being Christians at all. But there is within the framework and the context of the Bill of Rights, of the Constitution, of the Declaration of Independence, a moral law built off of the Ten Commandments. Now, it may not be stated emphatically, but it is implied emphatically that we are a society and a country built off of a moral Christ-centered, God-centered worldview, and we are moving further and further away from that, and we are seeing the evidences and the consequences of it. They were blatantly disobedient. They forsook the Lord to serve other gods. Now, the worship of Baal, archaeologists and historians, biblical historians, tell us that the worship of Baal was the most depraved and degrading worship that any group of people have ever come up with in the history of mankind. I mean, it was filled with degrading practices. They engaged in temple prostitution. They engaged in fertility rites. They engaged in sexual orgies, in idolatry. They worshiped snakes. They engaged in homosexuality and in human sacrifice. All as a part of their worship. This was all going on in worship. Can you imagine not driving out a people that when they gather to worship at 11 o'clock on their day of worship, they practice fertility rites, prostitution, orgies, idolatry, snake worship, homosexuality, and human sacrifice. That right there ought to tell you something's wrong with this picture. 
Something's wrong with these people. They are perverted. They are depraved. They are degrading man. And God told them to drive them out. They were doing everything that was a total contradiction of a holy God. Now, it would seem to us, and I heard this when I sat in uh, college and seminary Bible classes, uh, we'd always get some guy in the class, he'd have a bleeding heart, and he said, I just can't believe God would tell ever to kill everybody. Here's, here's what God knows that we don't know. God knows when a people are beyond repentance. Now, you don't know that, and I don't know that, but God knows that. God knows when a people have so sold themselves into sin and depravity that they are beyond repentance, that they are beyond rebuke, they are beyond correction, they are beyond hope because they have seared consciences and have turned their back on God and will not come back to him. God knows when that happens. I don't. But here's the way you need to look at it. If you take the history in its context where mankind was at that point, this was not so much to be confused with God was cruel and angry as that God knew that there had to be spiritual surgery in his land. Note the context. In his land. Not their land. They were squatters. They had taken the land from Israel while they were in bondage. That was the land promised to Abraham, the land for the descendants, the land for the people of covenant, and they were practicing all this within the borders of the land that God had given Israel. And God says, you're going to have to cut them out because they're not going to change. They're not going to repent. They're not going to change. In fact, if you don't cut it out, they're going to bring you down. You're not going to lift them up. And so God was dealing with spiritual surgery, not so much warfare. And this is an example, not that God is an angry deity with petty anger of an immature deity, but that God is a holy God, and he is righteous and holy, and he expects his people to be righteous and holy, and he knows that we are bent towards sin and that in our fallen nature, we are depraved and left to ourselves, we will always go the wrong road. And so he said, before you put your children in that environment, and before you think you can live next to that and tolerate that, you need to deal with it. And you need to cut it out. Something had to be cut off. Two reasons. One, sin produces servitude. And if you read the book of Judges, you will find that every time... Israel did not act as they were supposed to act. They were in bondage and servitude to the Canaanites and the Edomites and the others that were in the land. Sin produces servitude. You don't master sin. Sin masters you. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that you can overcome sin. On your own, you can't do it. Secondly, breaking God's law leads to bondage. Breaking God's law leads to bondage. Now, what was the mindset of these people? They were in bondage to false gods. Here's the mindset, and it is the mindset, even as depraved and wicked as this was, this is the mindset of every religion in the world. Now, notice that I said religion, because I do not view Christianity as a religion. 
because religion is man trying to get to God and man trying to appease God and man trying to make God happy. That's religion. Christianity is God came to man. And God gave himself for man. There's two totally different things. Christianity is not a religion by the definition of religion. Christianity is a relationship between God and people. Now, what these false religions were doing, they were offering sacrifices, all this human sacrifice, this idolatry, these orgies and everything was to do one of two things. It was to appease God and get him off of their back. Or they thought if they did those things, God would give them what they wanted. So it was a works-oriented religion. Let you know something about what God thinks about works-oriented religion. It's nothing to him. It does not get his attention. You, you don't get to heaven and say, you know, my good works outweighed my bad works, so I should get in the door. That's not the way it works. You know, I did this, but I didn't do that. That's not the way it works. That's works-oriented religion. And these depraved, degrading religions were working their way to appease a God that wasn't even a God. In fact, what they were appeasing was demons and the demonic. These gods, anytime you see people worshiping a false god, what they're really worshiping is some element of the demonic. It is a spiritual issue. They are spiritual people, but they're spiritual in the framework of the demonic. And you need to understand that it's not just an idol. It is an idol with the presence of the demonic on it. Uh, we, we were listening to a message by Erwin Lutzer while we were going to the cove, and I'm just going to digress here for a minute. We were listening to him, and he was talking about people that are ghost hunters. And, you know, you take these ghost tours of Gettysburg, and you can take these ghost tours of battlefields and everything. And, you know, people ask him, do you believe in ghosts? He said, no, I don't believe in ghosts, but I do believe in demonic spirits that stay where people died. And when you hear people talking about ghost hunters, and you see these TV shows, look, there's one over there, there's a movement. Let me tell you something, folks. They're playing with demonic forces. They're not seeing Casper the Friendly Ghost. They're playing with demonic forces. And demonic presence that is in a place looking for a person. And you better understand the difference between that and the simple, oh, let's ghost hunters, let's watch that show. What you're watching is people that are being deluded by the demonic. There are people that are being deceived by the demonic. So, you have to remember, God has a plan for his people. Now, here, here's the beauty of God's plan. God said, I choose a people. Now, let's just have a little audience participation here. Did Abraham have anything to do with his choosing? Yes or no? Hmm. Did Abraham have anything to do with the land he ended up in? Yes or no? No. Abraham didn't go say, I've got an idea. I think I'm going to go to another country. God came to Abraham. God chose Abraham. God chose Abraham's seed. God chose to make a covenant. God chose a land. God chose a people to be set apart and to be unique, to be his witnesses. The Jews were to be to the world what the church is to be to the world in the new covenant. And they were to be the witnesses to the Gentiles of God's amazing sovereign grace 
that has been shed on a people that were the least of all the people of the world, the despised of all the people in the world, and God said, I choose them. That's why Paul comes around later and he says, you know, we were not many wise and not many strong, but we were weak and we were despised. Why? So that the glory would be in God, not in us. So here are the Jews, a chosen people set apart. And why did God tell them all this? Because God didn't want the Jews to be mixed up with the Edomites and the Canaanites and, and the Philistines and others who have been long removed from the pages of history. I mean, when's the last time you met an Edomite? <laughs> when's the last time you met a Canaanite or a Philistine? They don't exist. They're gone. Their, their name, their bloodline is wiped out. They're gone. And yet, you don't think God's large and in charge? <laughs> and yet, although without a land for over 2,000 years without a country to call their own, with people trying to wipe them out by the millions, the Jews stand today in a land called Israel because God has never forgotten, I gave them that land. And let me just say, just as a side note, Akma nutcase in Iran will not get the last word on Israel. He may bomb them, and God's going to bomb him. <laughs> because there is a place in hell for people that mess with God's people. Now, I don't understand how all that works in the economy of God, but I can tell you this. You better pray for the Jewish people, and you better love the Jewish people, even those that are Jewish only by bloodline and don't practice their Jewish faith. Because if it hadn't been for a Jew, you wouldn't have been saved. That's right. That's right. Amen. The only reason you're saved is because a Jew died for your sins. That's right. Jesus came through the Jewish bloodline. Not through my bloodline. He has no bloodline connected to South Mississippi. But he does have a bloodline connected to Israel. That's right. Amen. So... God has put these people in perspective. Now, here's why this is important. The biblical view of history is different than every other view of history. It's the opposite of the pagan worldview. Here's the biblical view of history in a nutshell. God is moving toward his own conclusion. God is setting the stage in every event of life and in every event of history to bring this world to a final end to where there's a new heaven and a new earth when Christ will reign and he will have a final intervention. History is not drifting along aimlessly without purpose. The dictators, the rulers, the tyrants, the leaders of this world may think they're in charge, but God is bringing this world to an end. This world is going to end as we know it. So if we put all our stock and our faith and our hope in this world, we're putting it in something that's going to end. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. History works differently, but God intervenes at points in history. He did it from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. He intervened. Adam and Eve sinned. What did he do? There was a slain animal and there was covering for them. God intervened for Adam and Eve. And it began in the garden with a blood sacrifice. 
God intervened in the flood. He could have wiped out all of humanity, but he saved Noah and his family. And think about Noah preaching for 100 plus years and nobody gets saved but his family. Talk about a guy that could be discouraged. But God intervened. God intervened at the falling of the wall of Jericho. God intervened in the Exodus. God intervened when the people are in Babylon. And in, in Isaiah 45, he sends Cyrus, a Babylonian pagan Gentile king, to start seeing that the people get to go back to the land. God was quiet for 400 years and then he intervened with Jesus and Jesus came on the earth and then God intervened again in a world that needed an exhibition of his power. He came down in his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. God has through history intervened in ways that we cannot understand and we cannot begin to comprehend. Why? Because God has a plan. And guess what? As a believer, you are a part of that plan. God's plan includes you and me, and it includes the Jewish people. There are yet many to be saved in Israel. And where great historical events have happened, there is one more key event that's going to take place. The Son of God is going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Now that is going to be an intervention. God has a plan and he has a purpose. In the biblical view of history, God intervenes to judge evil and to reward righteousness. Now there's a long passage that's about to come up on the screen because this is your answer. And you can just write down the reference and look at it later. This is your answer to those who question if God really has a plan for this world. Peter gave it to us 2,000 years ago. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. They're saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. God has called his people out to remind them, I'm not through yet. I've still got something to do. And when we forget that, we end up in bondage. Secondly, when we forget God, we fail to walk in the Spirit. When we forget God, we fail to walk in the Spirit. Now remember, you always read the Old Testament in light of the New you, don't, you, you read the Old Testament knowing, looking back, 
from the New Testament perspective and you read it looking at it from the New Testament perspective. And so when we read it, we realize that just as it was easy for them to fall into sin, we know it's easy for us to fall into sin. And when Paul said in Corinthians, these things happened to them, he was referring particularly to the wilderness, but the stories of the Old Testament are there for us to remind us that the same sins, the same mistakes, and the same consequences that happened to them can happen to us. And so how do we avoid that? How do we avoid the traps and the snares and the whips and the thorns? How do we live a life that keeps from getting ensnared by the evil things of this world? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to walk through Ephesians 4 and 5 for the next few minutes. Ephesians chapter 4. Because Ephesians 4 and 5 talks about our walk. Now, how do you stay on the straight and narrow? You watch your walk. You watch your life. And when the scripture, especially in Ephesians, is talking about our walk, he is talking about our way of life, our choices, our attitudes, and the consequences of those things. Ephesians 4, 1, and every time you see the word walk, you ought to underline it. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Therefore, now you know what that means. What's it there for? Literally, he's saying that because of what I've just been saying to you, you are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He's been talking about doctrine. Ephesians, the first three chapters are about doctrine. The last three are the application of doctrine. This is what you need to know. This is how you need to live it out. So when you see Paul's writings, he always begins with doctrine. These are truths that you need to understand. And then he ends with application. This is the way you need to see it working out in your life. So now look at uh, Ephesians 3. Go back to Ephesians 3 for a minute. Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 is a prayer, and the main point of that prayer is found in verses 16 through 19. Here's Paul's prayer for them, should be your prayer for yourself and your prayer for your family, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Here's what Paul is praying. Paul is praying as he's about to talk to them about their walk what a walk looks like, to be filled up with all the fullness of God. That's what we ought to pray. God, I want a walk that is filled up with all the fullness of God. I want all of Jesus that you have for me. I want all of the Spirit. It's not that you can get more of the Spirit. It's that the Spirit can get more of you. I want all of you that you have for me. I don't want to settle for less. I don't want to get the discounted, marred version. I want to get the best of your best for my life. Now look at verse 14 of Ephesians 4. Here we go again with a walk. 
So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. So he's comparing walks, those who walk with God and those who walk like the Gentiles or the lost walk, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness, but you did not learn Christ in this way. You see what he just did? Paul just reached back, and if you can use your sanctified imagination, he said, all those nations that God told that they were to destroy, that's what needs to be destroyed in your own life. That's the way the world walks. That's the way the Gentiles walk. That's the way the ungodly walk. You didn't learn Christ that way. So when somebody says, I can live however I want to and still be a Christian, they didn't learn Christ that way. Some preacher may have told them that, but they didn't learn Christ that way. I can have any kind of life I want, do whatever I want with my time, my life, my money, my family, act any way I want to act. They didn't learn Christ that way. That's the hardness and callousness of a heart that is not repentant toward God. And when you see somebody acting like that, you know one or two things. Either they're not saved or they're living in bondage. Because if a Christian is in bondage, it's almost a contradiction of terms. Because we did not learn Christ that way. Christ came to set captives free, not put us into more bondage. He came to set captives free. And for some reason, it seems we like bondage more than we like freedom, unless you've been truly set free. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. Verse 7, therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness. He didn't say they were walking in darkness. He said, you, you were just darkness. Your heart was just darkness. You were dwelling in darkness, in the pit. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I want to give you three things here in Ephesians 4 and 5 about how we're to walk. And it's real simple. We're to walk in life, we're to walk in love, and we're to walk in the light. Now, that pretty well covers it. We're to walk in life, the life that God had for us when Christ died for us, when the Spirit came to live inside of us. We're to walk in love. We're to love God with all our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves. And we're to walk in light, not according to the light, but in the light. Because when we're in the light, we're walking in the will and in the Word of God. Verse 18 tells us how we walk in the will of God. Now, you got to remember, Paul is writing to the Ephesians who have worshipped the goddess of Ephesus, who is a pagan goddess 
some of the same practices going on in Ephesus that were going on among the Canaanites and the Philistine. There was temple prostitution, there was orgies, there there was idolatry. And Paul is saying to them, that's your old life. Walk like you're somebody new. Live like you're somebody new. Love like you're somebody new. Walk in the light. You were over there in that temple walking in darkness. Now, when you walk the streets of Ephesus now, walk in the light. Don't get sucked into that bondage. Don't try to blend the two. Don't try to compromise. Don't straddle the fence. Get with it. Walk in the light. Paul is saying the way to victory is to be filled with the Spirit, or as the tense of it means, to continually be filled in the Spirit. John Hunter said, being filled with the Spirit is not an experience I seek so that I can be involved in a charismatic demonstration. It is a command I obey so that I can be involved in a relationship with the living Christ whereby my daily walk demonstrates his presence and his power, first of all, within my own home. Finally, when we remember God, we walk in daily dependence on him. Now, I want you to remember the context of Ephesians 5 when he says, be filled with the Spirit. You remember the context? It is in a conversation of how we live the Christ life in our home. Hardest place to live it. You know what Paul knew? Paul knew that if you can live full of Jesus in your home, you can live full of Jesus anywhere. Because he knew it's the hardest place to live full of Jesus. Because that's where you let your guard down. That's where you start saying things like, well, that's just the way I was raised. Well, get raised some way else. That's just the way I am. You knew that when you married me. Yeah, well, I thought you'd improve by now, but. He's doing it in the context of family. So being filled doesn't mean I have more of the Spirit. It means the Spirit has more of me. And the first example that Paul gives of that is the home, is how dads respond to children, how husbands and wives relate to each other. You know what the greatest evidence of the of the changing power of Jesus Christ is is when people see change in a home because we can pretend at church but it's when they see change at home and and in judges these people were allowing things in their home allowing influences in their life instead of sitting and talking and teaching their children the way Deuteronomy 6 had told them to do. They were allowing things to come into their home and they were compromising and it was taking away the light and the power of God in their community, in their nation, but most of all in their home. Nations fall because homes fall. Homes don't fall because nations fall. Nations fall because homes fall. And Paul, in the context of the family, says, be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because that's the hardest place. Now, let, it's just us. This is Sunday night. 
Is it not the hardest place for you to walk in the fullness of the Spirit is in your home? If it is, just shake your head this way. The rest of you are lying. I'll talk to your spouse later. It's the hardest place. Why? Because we have this, I just need to let down mentality. I do it. It's the hardest place for me is to walk in the fullness of the Spirit at home because I want to tell you, when everywhere you go in town, you're the pastor of Sherwood Baptist Church, you just like to pull the car in the garage, close the blinds, and spit BBs at people. I mean, you just... (laughs) You just want a place where you can go, I've had it! (laughs) You know, I'll go places and I'll wear a baseball hat way down and I'll, I'll put my glasses on everything and sure enough... I'm sitting there looking to do I do I want boxers or briefs and three people come up and go, You're the pastor at Sherwood, aren't you? <laughs> I can't go anywhere. And in that moment I'm just trying to be full of Jesus. And what I want is I want an escape hatch somewhere. It's tough for us. But can I tell you something? Compromising a nation has always begun with compromising the home. When we let our guard down and let the enemy get a foothold or a stronghold in our homes, in our lives individually or in our homes as a family, then we open the door for it to affect our neighborhood, our community, our county, our state, our nation, and ultimately the world. The reason why the world rejects Christianity is not because Christianity is not valid. The reason the world rejects Christianity is by and large because it has seen a compromised Christianity that they don't believe is worth giving up for. I'm going to skip the last part, and I just want to go to this. Henry Jacobson said, God knows how prone we are to lose sight of him when we do not seem to need him. And to forget him when things are going well, he therefore often allows adversities and adversaries to stand in our way, a sick baby, an unfair employer, an unpleasant neighbor, an unfaithful friend, in order to keep us close to him. You see, I think there are four things that can drive us to revival. Discipline can drive us to revival. Disaster can drive us to revival. Desperation can drive us to revival. But the best one is delighting in the Lord can drive us to revival. It doesn't have to get bad to get good. Israel should have never, the book of Judges should have never been written but the book of judges if you will let me put it in the context of the 21st century the book of judges is about a church and a people that wanted the world to like them approve of them and applaud them and think they were cool and so they said we'll think you're that way if you'll act like us be like us do what we do talk like we do If you'll become like us, we'll think you're cool. And the end result was they weren't cool. 
They were carnal. And in their carnality, people died and went to hell because they would not stand for Christ. I don't want us to be the book of Judges. But to not be that way, we have to go back to the promises that we made God when we first got saved. That he would be Lord, that we would love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we would obey him in what he said. Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed? In just a moment, we're going to have a song of invitation. And I'm going to invite you, if there's, if there's just a crack that you've given the enemy in your life, just a crack, then I'm going to invite you to take that opportunity to either kneel at this altar or maybe to turn back around and kneel in the seat and turn it into an altar where you've been sitting and just say to God, God, I've let a crack develop in my life. There's a there's a place where the enemy is worming his way in, into my heart and into my life. And, and I need to be cleansed. I need to be free of it. I don't need to be in bondage to that. It could be an attitude, an action. It could be a fear, an anxiety. It could be something physical. It could be emotional. It could be mental. It could be spiritual. But there's something that you know that you need to lay before the Lord tonight. As we continue to go through Judges after refresh, let's not let the book of Judges define or describe our families or our church. Let's be a church that understands that when we meditate on the Word of God and obey the Word of God, that's the path of success. That's the path of God's blessings and power. When we compromise, we lose his power. It's like letting the air out of a balloon. It's just gone. And the song that we sang earlier, I surrender, I surrender, that's what we have to do, and we have to do it every day. It's not, I surrendered last Sunday. Hey, I have to surrender every day. Sometimes I have to surrender hour by hour something crops up and rises up and stirs my flesh and, and I have to die to it again and again and again because I'm in a battle. And you're in a battle. The enemy wants to destroy you and pull you down and destroy your testimony and, and you're in a war for your testimony. And so as we, as the praise team sings in just a moment, I, I'm just going to ask you to just Right now, just draw that circle around yourself that we've been talking about for weeks and just say, Lord, in my heart, I don't want to compromise with the Canaanites and the Edomites and the Philistines and the Baals of this world and miss your blessings and miss what you have for me. I, I don't want to sell out to them or to it. I want to stay focused on you. So as they sing, you come as you need to come. We have people that are going to be presented tonight. I'm going to invite you to step out and make your way over to my left and your right, and we'll present you in a few moments. But as these are coming to be presented, as these are at the altar, let's do business with God in these few moments tonight, all right?
Take my life.